Welcome to Hence the Future podcast. I'm Adam Cronin. I'm Justin Clark. And today we're discussing the future of the Democratic Party. With us today is our in-house political correspondent, Brett Ewer. Brett, it's uh, great to have you back on the podcast. Thanks. It's great to be back on. I'm glad I've uh, gotten a promotion. Yeah. So you guys, our listeners may remember Brett from the future of politics. So if you're interested, we recommend you listen to that for a more high level view. But today we're focused really on the Democratic Party. And specifically, I want to start off with the debates. So I want to get your guys sense of, first of all, just who do you think did well in the debates? And also, then we can move on to what are the different visions of America in 2019 that each of these candidates are portraying on the debate stage? So let's start well, with who you think actually did well. What do you guys think? I mean, on the on the first night, the person that stood out to me uh, was John Delaney. You know, he was he was a guy I hadn't really heard about, but he seemed so reasonable about everything. Um, I don't know if he has a shot at winning, but he just he seemed to have real solutions to everything, which I thought was interesting. Yeah, I mean, this one tweet that John Delaney had really sums it up, where he says. I don't understand why anyone goes through the trouble of running for president if they can't explain how their plans work or can't honestly debate their ideas without accusing people who disagree with them of it being a Republican talking point. (laughs) (laughs) And I did get that sense that they never really delved into, okay, how is this actually going to work? We get that you want all of these great uh, transformative policies, but how's it actually going to work out? And that was one of my biggest gripes with the debates is they kept it really shallow and they never actually dug Mm -hmm. into okay so whose plan would actually work Mm -hmm. yeah i mean you know i think and and i guess this will be our first point of disagreement probably is that is that uh is that you know at this stage in the game when you're in the primary you don't want to necessarily talk about uh you know the nitty-gritty of policy because you are going to have to at some point Um, play politics or play, you know, legislative writing. I mean, you're going to be working or fighting against the opposing party. So you you really don't know how things are going to unfold. So, you know, there's there's the opportunity to lay out a grander vision that you then, you know, have your staff and and technocrats fill in the details there. but yeah, I mean, I think John Delaney did well because, you know, he has rel- he's relatively unknown. Uh, and, you know, the night was really for, for Senator Warren and Senator Sanders to lose. Yeah. Um, they have more name recognition. And even though Delaney's been campaigning for two years now, uh, he really he really is not. <laughs> yeah, uh, you're, seeing you're, a, you know, we're probably in the minority in thinking that Delaney did really well. And <laughs> I mean, the debate format is kind of. It, you know, it's very much favors the candidates that are already at the top. So it might be good to talk about the top candidates and how we think they did. Like, Brett, I'm curious with the first night of the debate, what you thought about Warren versus Sanders and, you know, the other players. Um, and then we can talk about night two with Biden after that. Yeah, well, I'll, I'll offer first a disclaimer that I uh, in 2014, I briefly worked in Senator Warren's office. So I'm coming from a biased point of view, but I think they did really well. Uh, both of them, you know, the reason why CNN put them together, uh, at least 
this is the buzz, is that uh, they wanted to have conflict between two of the leading left voices in the Democratic Party. They right. wanted a, a fighting match, and they really didn't take the bait. Um, oh, yeah, they almost formed a pact. They were, like, looking at each other, like, look at these other assholes trying to stop short of giving people full health care. And... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, they really, they really held a... Uh, I was going to say they held the center because they're physically in the center of the stage, but no, they, they held the left. Do you uh, think that's going to work out for them? Because it seems like they have very similar constituents, so it seems like if either of them is going to have a shot at, at going up against Biden, they're going to need to take some constituents away from the other person in their ideological space. Yeah, I mean, at some point, they're going to have to... They're going to have to compete against each other. And I think now's not really the time. I mean, we're still about five or six months away from uh, the first caucus and primary. So, you know, really the, the name of the game right now for them is to elevate uh, their ideas in the public forum, in the public discourse, so that people are, are forced to talk about these things. They're forced to talk about Medicare for all or, uh, you know, Senator Warren's uh, universal child care plan. Mm -hmm. which is the first that I've ever heard of, you know, that sort of a plan being discussed on the national stage. I mean, it's amazing that that's, <laughs> that's been elevated. It's amazing what a presidential campaign can do for a policy. Yeah, I, I've been impressed that I thought that Warren's best moment was when she said, I don't understand why anyone can run for president just to tell you what we can't do. Like, we yeah. need big ideas. We need to... And when you think about what Trump did that got him elected, he made these huge, massive promises like we're going to build a wall and Mexico is going to pay for it. We're going to deport every illegal immigrant. We're going to, you know, we're going to take down wall. Like he, he literally made the biggest promises. And then what he actually did in office was he pulled back to something that was more of a realistic level of achievement. So. It seems like that's kind of what the Democrats are doing. I just wonder if that will play as well with, you know, Democratic voters as, you know, it plays with Republican voters. It seems like a lot of Democrats are more leaning towards like moderate. And if they can't like really map out how it's going to work, then they're less supportive. It yeah. does seem like there is sort of a, a sect that's far left, like the Democratic Socialist sect of the Democratic Party. You mm. know, I, I don't know how that will play into the the run against Donald Trump. You know, is is someone that's a Democratic Socialist more likely to win against Trump or is someone more moderate that can sort of pull uh, center of or right of center, left of center and then, you know, everyone um, on the left? I'm not yeah. really sure. Well, I you have might a... need an extreme to fight an extreme. Right. Well, there's actually some interesting stats on that. So they did a poll recently from Politico, which says, which of the following best describes how you feel for the 2020 Democratic primary? 78% of people say we need a candidate who can heal the division in our country. Only 15% said we need a, con a candidate who will fight back. So it seems like the vibe is more who can we get to heal the damage that Trump has done, you know, at least from the Democrat, Democrat perspective, rather than getting someone who's going to fight and bring about big structural change. And there's another stat that also supports that, which talks about 
the most important issues to voters. And the number one issue is dissatisfaction with government slash poor leadership. The next biggest issue is illegal immigration. And, the, and those are both at like, you know, 23, 26%. The next issue down is healthcare at only 7%. So even though in the democratic world, it seems like, oh, healthcare is really important and some of these other environment are really important. When you actually look at the polls, it's very clear that on the democratic side, what matters most is sort of healing the divide and improving like the corruption of government. And then on the Republican side, it's really all about immigration is what it looks like. That's interesting. And, and, and to Justin's greater point, you know, I, it's it's illustrative of, of two different electoral philosophies. One that's espoused by the centrists like the New Democrats, you know, the Blue Dogs, is that uh, you are winning over a static electorate of people that are likely to vote. So you're going after, I think, as, as Senator Schumer famously said, uh, you know, for every for every person we lose in the Rust Belt, we'll gain two, you know, two voters in the suburbs. The other electoral philosophy um, is that there's a vast untapped sea of potential voters, people who are so disillusioned with government, so disillusioned with the political circus and how it plays out that they just tune it out. They don't really vote. Our voting rates are abysmal, even in presidential election years, let alone, you know, midterm years. Uh, and so the electoral philosophy of of I think the left wing of the party, uh, and then you know other fringe players like you know the DSA or or other left groups is to uh, access that sea of voters and give them material promises. So even if you are disillusioned by government. You can still say, well, I hate private insurers. You know, I hate health. Mm -hmm. I hate our healthcare system, and that that's supposed to cause this sort of groundswell of uh, support for material policies that will make people's lives better. Um, which one works? I don't know. Um, you know, we'll only know after the election, <laughs> which I yeah. guess is too late. Right. But, yeah. I mean, that's that is one thing we saw though in 2016 that polls weren't necessarily the most accurate form of data. You know, mm -hmm. the polls were showing Trump didn't have a shot in hell to win, really. I mean, some people still predicted that he would, um, but the polls didn't show that he was going to win. We just we had right. to figure it out at the election. And it's clear that the reason he did win is because he was by far the most persuasive. And the story that he painted of America resonated more than the story that Hillary Clinton told to America. And so I wonder how the current candidates, how well their stories will resonate and how persuasive you guys think they are. Because it seems like, you know, the story that Andrew Yang tells about America, about the wave of automation that's coming and we've got to do something now that's not, you know, log jammed with bureaucracy and the broken welfare system compared to the story that Biden tells, which is basically like, hey, everything will be just fine if we can get Trump out of office and go back to the same path that, you know, Barack and I had us on. And compared to like Warren's story, which is we need big structural change. Like these are all very and then, you know, it doesn't seem like Harris has like a real 
story that is rooted in you know real values and ideology it seems like she's more of just a player playing the game even if she's playing it you know somewhat uh skillfully but i'm curious what you guys think about the various stories and how persuasive each candidate is well you know i i think less than or more than donald trump's vision for america is i think people what people were drawn to him because of his authenticity Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, his authenticity revealed that he's a disgusting, boorish, you know, <laughs> he's a disgusting, boorish, probably horrible person. I mean, you know, yeah, he was he's an authentic Jeff- New York <laughs> asshole. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, no, exactly. Exactly. When, you know, he took Ted Cruz's, you know, oh, you have New York values thing and just ran with it. And he was like, yeah, I'm a brash piece of shit. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> but, uh, but, um, but that really resonated with people because I think during, you know, there is too much you know, political correctness that absolutely resonated with people. Sure. Or just people talking about like politicians talking like a press release, mm. like, oh, we're working hard for America's families. What does that mean? That's like, yeah. come on, actually explain how you want to make people's lives better. And for Donald Trump, he was able to find, you know, I think he was able to find, uh, he was able to make, you know, immigrants scapegoats or things like that. But, but, you know, I think people are drawn to authenticity. And so I think that's, that's probably what's going to, uh, what's going to help most of the candidates. So who do you think's the most authentic? I mean, if you want to go on a New York level, probably Bernie, uh, just because I think for so many people, when he first ran in 2015, I remember his his press announcement. It was this tiny little thing in May 2015. There was like six reporters there. And people were thinking, who is this old man from <laughs> a sti- with a weird accent from this state of 600,000 people, like less than this, less than Boston, less than Nashville? <laughs> like, who is this guy? Why is he saying these things? And does he really have a chance against against uh secretary clinton and you know he ran a campaign and he spoke from the heart and i think people were drawn to that um but other people in this cycle are are doing the same thing i think cory booker is pretty authentic uh i think elizabeth warren's pretty authentic uh i I think that's interesting because my dad really thought cory booker had a good performance too but something about him just really rubs me the wrong way i don't know what it is but it does seem like some people really perceive him as having that X factor, whereas other people are not drawn to him like me. Um, so that I would say, like, for my from my point of view, the most authentic seems to be, I agree, Bernie seems, it's so clear that he believes what he says, like, for sure. Andrew, he's been saying it for decades, too. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah, he's got the track record. <laughs> Andrew Yang talks exactly like, like, you could ask him any question and he'll just say what he actually believes. He doesn't need like a pre-canned sort of response is, is what it seems like. Um, yeah. And I, I, and I oh, think sorry. Biden is, is uh, he's authentic to a degree where even if he's, you know, makes a lot of guffaws, he still is someone who clearly has his values. And he also sounds the most presidential. That was a, that was a, that was something that Scott Adams noticed is that he has that really good presidential voice. And I'm curious also what you guys think of, we haven't talked about Pete Buttigieg. He is, uh, 
seems like a really strong candidate. However, Scott Adams made another interesting observation on him, which is that he may actually be too smart to be relevant for people. Like he, he may be too smart, to, or too smart to be relatable, was what he said. Like he almost mm-hmm. comes off with a little bit of an air of smugness. And that may disconnect him from the average voter, even though he may, you know, be the, the best at actually running the country once, you know, if he if he got the nomination. Yeah, I mean, I have noticed a difference between who I think is the most persuasive and what the polls are saying. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't necessarily think that, you know, um, Kamala Harris is the most persuasive person, even though she's she's kind of up there right now. But I do think that Buttigieg is like, he's a he looks like a really smart guy and seems like a smart guy and that's what i'm drawn towards i think andrew yang is pretty smart like i said earlier i think uh, john delaney is pretty smart mm-hmm. um i'm curious what you guys thought of uh tulsi gabbard because she got a lot of press after the second night she was the most googled candidate in every mm-hmm. single state after wow. the second debate Jeez. And the first night, the most Googled candidate was Marianne Williamson in every state except for Montana. So <laughs> yeah, something you, about those two. <laughs> yeah, you know what? I want to change my answer from before. Marianne Williamson is probably the most authentic just because it's like, where, where yeah. are you coming? Yeah. What a dark psychic force. I mean, it's like, <laughs> I don't. you don't even need to play on that line. It's just all of her answers. You know, she. it's very clear that she's not from the political world she's not used Mm. to the you know that kind of circus Uh, yeah she's playing the meta game of persuasion that trump is so good at and the other democrats don't even seem to understand this like meta persuasion game well you know i think i think andrew yang was I, i i really liked his performance and it was because he recognized that everyone else i mean everyone else is performing at the in his closing statement he said Yes, I know everyone's throwing out these rehearsed uh, attack lines and like putting on makeup and all this stuff. I mean, he he broke the fourth wall. He right. looked at the cameras and said, yep, everyone knows that this is a big joke. This is a big, you know, farce. We're all rehearsing, right. you know, we're not actually talking policy. I'm the only one here who's talking about something of pressing concern, which is that the structure of our society is about to change because you know, we tie so much of so much social meaning to what we produce and what we do uh, that we're not, you know, we're, we're reaching a chasm and, and we have no plan for it. So, right. Yeah. I want to give him authenticity points, too. Yeah. Is, yeah. But yeah, Marianne Williamson, I thought that she actually did the best job of articulating why people should join this democratic movement, which is to basically fight back against this dark psychic energy that's been (laughs) rising up from Trump and instead combat it with love, which obviously sounds ridiculous, but there is a lot of truth to it when you actually think about what she's saying. And it's funny because she definitely represents some slice of the Democratic Party where, like I saw someone tweeted, they were like, people on the East Coast are like, oh, Marianne Williamson, what a kook. And then people on the West Coast are like, Someone exactly like her is my medical doctor. <laughs> <laughs> and like, I know a lot of people like Marianne Williamson living in L.A. So, but I don't know if the country would be ready for someone with who uses her type of language. 
Yeah, I, I wonder how she'd play in like North Dakota. Um, <laughs> I was I was actually there earlier this year, and I was sitting with these. I was uh, I was working there, and I was sitting with these guys uh, at a bar, just you know, drinking very cheap beer. It's amazing out there. Uh, but and and they were and they were giving a very candid appraisal um, of their view of where the Democratic Party's going, and they're you know easily on the more conservative wing, and I could see them absolutely blanching at the thought of her being the nominee uh so yeah. you know it, i guess my point there is that it's easy for us especially if we live on the coasts to say like oh like no of course like there's no one living out there like why you know why should their opinions be factored into it but th there are people out there who are you know part of the party and and they also have a say right you know all the same country yeah yeah, but and then to your point about uh, about Tulsi Gabbard, it's interesting that she got so many search results, and I bet it's because of her feud with Kamala. So if you got if any of our listeners missed it, basically what happened is the whole night Kamala Harris and everyone else was just piling on to Biden and really trying to attack him. But what ended up happening is the audience started to just sort of feel bad for Biden and sort of things, see things from his view. And Kamala Harris and some of these other candidates really came off as being like sort of mean-spirited, is was my take on it. And at a certain point, Tulsi Gabbard came to Biden's defense and started attacking Kamala Harris's record, saying that she had put away, I don't know how many people for smoking marijuana. And then when she was asked about her own marijuana habits, she laughed about it. And that was just absolutely devastating to Kamala Harris. So I wonder what you guys, I mean, first, if you have any thoughts of Tulsi Gabbard, but secondly, do you think, like, what would you advise Kamala Harris to do? Or do, do you think there's anything she can do that would, um, you know, make her much more viable as a candidate against someone like Biden? It did seem like she got a lot of early press for attacking Biden, like calling him a racist, which, which I think no that one really was totally unfair. Like, yeah. yeah, I mean, it, yeah. I think she maybe she got too much press, so she tried to continue those attacks, and then people are like, wait a sec, they're calling her out on her bullshit. Um, so I don't know. She just, I don't really, I didn't really get a good vibe from her um, when I was watching the debates. But I did notice, like, also when when people were attacking her, she would just say, "Well, you're just wrong," yeah, or, you know, something it, along that. I was like, "I know I that mean, was really least... off-putting to me." It... Yeah. So I don't I don't know if you know I have a, a true answer for how I think she can move forward, but that, those were just my observations watching her. She also seems to not have real conviction. Like most people, like Bernie, if you ask him a question, even if he hasn't thought of it before, it will fit into his philosophy of how the world should work. But mm. because there's no structural philosophy for how Kamala Harris thinks the world should work, it's hard to predict what she's going to say on an issue. And it seems like she's sort of just testing the waters of what's the most favorable position I could have. And I think that's a problem that Hillary Clinton had, too, is like she would just not respond and then do all of this research and polling data and then come up with her uh, very calculated uh, position on an issue and voters can see right through that. I, th I think it's going to be a problem for any 
Democrat that could be characterized as a centrist uh, or being in the more moderate wing of the party is that, you know, on social issues, no, no real contest. You know, everyone's mostly on the same page. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but when it comes to economic issues, uh, you know, Democrats in the center are also trying to uh, win the support of large industries or businesses. They have right. a lot of money. Right. Um, you know, our campaign finance system is is geared toward incentivizing uh, policies that benefit people with with more material wealth. So, totally. like, you, you, you know, you can't go out there and it, it's, it's just harder for her to to walk that line versus for Bernie. It's like, well, he's got a philosophy. He can stick right to it and he can always go back to his his stump speech. Yeah, and he uh, has a true grassroots movement where he has all of these small donors giving him money. And I want to talk about this incentive structure with financing because it's really out of whack. So basically, the rules in this most recent debate is that you have to have at least 65,000 donors and mm-hmm. you need at least 200 donors per state in at least 20 U.S. states. Now, in the next debates in September, the number of donors you need and it doubles. So you need 130,000 donors. So basically, you know, you can see why they put these incentives in there because they're trying to incentivize grassroots campaigns where you have lots of small donors from a wide variety of states so you could sweep the country, you know, like Obama did. But what's actually happening when you look into it is that candidates are spending $70 $70 in advertising to get $1 in a small campaign contribution so that they can reach the minimum number of donors. And they're funding it by having these massive like deals with special interest groups and, and lobbying groups. So it's like a totally perverse incentive structure that is just like this just a ridiculous circus of getting big money from big uh, special interests and then using that to get like a dollar here, a dollar there from like regular folks. It's ridiculous. It's like, it's like what, uh, what Tom Steyer is doing. Tom Steyer, the, uh, I think former hedge fund manager, he's a billionaire. Uh, He's running need to impeach, which is a, a public interest group that's focusing on why we should impeach Donald Trump. And, and he, I think there was a Politico report recently where he was asking people to donate like pennies, cents, right. just so that he could meet those thresholds. Um, but, you know, I think it's a step in the right direction for the party is that if we do claim to be a party of everyday people, uh, you know, there should be there, there shouldn't be an upper crust or an elite that's dictating, uh, you know, which way the party should be going. And, and so then, you know, you're going to see you're going to see sort of performances like this where people are funneling money into uh, into meeting, you know, a threshold. And, and hopefully next time, uh, you know, we get around to it next presidential cycle, uh, we'll have refined those rules even more. Right. Yeah. I mean, we on the future of politics, we talked about the idea that you could basically give people um I forget what they call them, like democracy vouchers, I think they call them, Mm -hmm. which basically allows you, so you get like every citizen gets like, you know, five vouchers with each one being like a hundred bucks or something. And then you get to choose who you give your vouchers to. 
So it's more of like you have to really speak to the voters so they decide to give you their their vouchers rather than speaking to lobbyists, getting the money and then just blasting them with Facebook ads and Instagram ads so you can meet the requirements. So, so yeah, you know, it's funny you mentioned lobbyists because so many of the candidates this cycle have sworn off of uh, contributions from registered lobbyists. So if you, you know, if you you have to register federally if you want to partake in lobbying activities, which are pretty narrowly defined. Um, so there, there's really an undercount of how many actual lobbyists most people would consider, you know, most people would consider uh, thousands of more people lobbyists than the federal government does. Mm -hmm. But, you know, Bernie Sanders campaign doesn't accept contributions from lobbyists, I believe. Uh, Elizabeth Warren's doesn't. I don't think Pete Buttigieg's does. Uh, one thing I think is fascinating is that uh, Kirsten Gillibrand, the senator from New York, uh, she does not accept contributions from federal lobbyists. And I always thought mm. that was an interesting uh, that was an interesting specific because, well, that means that she can receive contributions from uh, New York state registered lobbyists. And Lord <laughs> knows there's plenty of banks in New York that can pay lobbyists enough that their contributions can filter in. So I, I don't know. I always I thought that was kind of an interesting loophole that she, uh, right. that she built in for herself. But Yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting because when you look at the actual amount of cash that each of these candidates have, you know, Donald Trump obviously has the most because he's pretty much locked in as the uh, Republican contender. Bernie Sanders has the next most. He has $27 mm -hmm. million dollars cash on hand. And then I was really surprised by this. Pete Buttigieg has the next most cash on hands with $22 million. And then Elizabeth Warren has $19 million. So it is interesting. It does seem like Pete Buttigieg could make a serious push, given how much money he still has uh, on hand to be spent. Yeah, Pete Buttigieg got... Um, he's kind of seen as being the... Uh, the candidate for a lot of people from the Obama administration, like a lot of people that served as appointees. I know that there are a few people that have already endorsed him uh, who served in the Obama administration. So I think he's seen as kind of the torchbearer. Uh, and, you know, within the centrist wing, it's it's him, uh, Senator Harris and Senator, Bi I'm sorry, <laughs> former Vice President Biden, uh, though he was a senator at one point, I guess. I guess it's not wrong. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh they're kind of seen as like carrying the torch from that era. And so they're fighting over, uh, you know, the people that bundled and contributed en masse to President Obama's campaigns. Right. Now, I want to get into some predictions. And before we get into like the worst case, best case, most likely, I just want to get a sense for if we're thinking of this like a basketball bracket, what do you guys think is just a very likely scenario as far as who are going to be the final three Democrat contenders, then who will be the final two, who's going to win, who ha like who could actually beat Trump if they do win? Like, I mean, I have my own thoughts, but I want to I want to hear you, your guys thoughts on who's going to win the primary most likely. And then of the potential primary winners, who would actually have the best shot at beating Trump? Man. Not who you uh, want to win, who do you actually yeah. think is going to win? Well, I mean, it's it's hard to um, vote 
or hard to predict against Biden right now, I think, just because he is he, you know, we've he's been in the White House as vice president. He has such a strong support from Obama era uh, voters. So I just I think that he's probably the most likely, you know, if I just were to assign a probability of most likely to win the primary or the general or both. So I would say that he has uh, the best chance to win the primary, but also he might be the best option against Trump as well. Um, I don't know. You know, there's there's so many factors to this. It's it's hard to say because he's he's the establishment. I mean, it's it's basically a non um, crooked Hillary version of the Democrat. You know, it's right, I don't right. think he's as as corrupt as people perceived uh, Hillary to be. So maybe he's kind of like her replacement. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I think that that might be the case. That Brett, what do you think? I, I'll tell you, I think anyone who knows for certain is probably trying to sell a book. Um, <laughs> but um, Justin, when's your book coming out? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'll buy it. Um, I think it's going to be, I mean, it's, it's Biden's to lose, at least by polling. But then again, polls completely missed the rise of Donald Trump. I mean, I, you know, I put very little faith in traditional metrics nowadays. Um, But it is Biden's to lose by those metrics. But I think Harris can probably do, you know, within, within the centrist wing, I think Harris actually has a pretty strong chance. And, and my reasoning for that is based off of the timing of the primaries. So California moved its primary system uh, or its primary date up earlier. Uh, and Nevada is already one of the early primary states and Nevada generally, you know, you get a lot of crossover between states, you know, uh, candidates from Massachusetts tend to do pretty well in New Hampshire. Uh, so, uh, you know, she could make a pretty early swing and gather a lot of delegates and a lot of momentum. Mm-hmm. And then as she as she swings through the South, where there are a lot of uh, conservative, more conservative black voters, uh, you know, she could pick up a lot of votes just based off of her own identity as a black woman. Um, yeah. Although but, I would but, say it does yeah. seem like she doesn't have that strong of support in the African-American community as that you would expect, because she's has this perception as being a cop who's locked up a lot of low-level drug offenders and that kind of thing. That, that may hurt her. Yeah. I mean, I think Biden's polling better among among black voters in the South, at least in South Carolina, mm-hmm. uh, I've, I've seen. But again, you know, primaries, elections, a month is a lifetime. So anything could change. I think when it comes down to uh, Bernie and Warren, I think... Uh, that's even, I mean, that's that's just as tough. Uh, yeah. Bernie has a lot of infrastructure. He has groups like Our Revolution, the Justice Democrats, the Sanders Institute. All of these are institutions that can put out their own messages. They have their own email lists. He has a little bit more, uh, he's a little bit more recent in terms of his progressive bona fides. Mm-hmm. Um but then Senator Warren also, you know, could be a good compromise candidate between the two wings because she's well liked by the center. Uh, progressives like her, too. She was kind of like the the OG Bernie, you know, in the Senate. I mean, I mean, yeah. he's been around for, you know, forever. But she had, uh, you know, 
before he really started running, she was she was pretty well known in the Senate for her progressive policies. Yeah, it does seem like Warren would be the preferred candidate for the DNC over Bernie because she's a little fresher, maybe not perceived as as extreme. Yeah, I mean, my I guess my own prediction as far as how I think think things are going to pan out. I think it's either going to come down to Biden versus Warren or Biden Mm -hmm. versus Harris in the primary. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's as likely to see Biden versus Bernie, although that is a possibility. And I think if Biden goes up against Harris, I think Biden's going to win because I think the dynamic is going to be oh, Harris is kind of mean and people are going to feel bad for old Joe. And I don't think that's a good dynamic for Harris. Like she's a great attack dog, but I think that may actually work against her with someone as lovable as Joe Biden. If it's Biden versus um, uh, versus Warren, I actually think it's possible Warren could win because Warren does have a lot of ground support with you know, people who just love the idea of getting better health care and, th- and that sort of thing. However, if Warren beats Biden in the primary, I think it's very small chance she'll beat Trump because she has just she a lawyerly way of talking, which has served her well in her career. But I don't see that resonating with voters. And also, if you just look at the issues, like it seems like Biden has a really clear argument where it's basically just like, Like Biden's position pretty much neutralizes Trump's arguments that the Democrats are crazy socialists and they're looking to do all of this massive change and it's going to tank the economy. Like Biden can say, look, the economy was great when we were doing, you know, under Obama and we had Medicare for all. Like I've done it. It's not risky. There's not this is not some new risky socialist agenda. So that would totally neutralize Trump's biggest Trump's biggest argument. And then if you put up, but if you put up Trump against Warren and you start talking about things like giving free health care to illegal immigrants, which she's in favor of and Warren's in, and uh, other, you know, Bernie and others are in favor of, or things like decriminalizing the border, I mean, that is not going to play well on a, on a national stage. Yeah, I don't think you would convert any Trump fans by right. putting either of those two against him. I also it seems like someone needs to ask what would happen if you totally decriminalized illegal border crossings like I've never heard a Democratic candidate actually answer the question. I mean, sometimes they'll say, oh, well, there would just be civil proceedings. But if you if you cannot detain people who illegally cross the border, then what do you do? Like, I haven't heard like a good answer to that. I was. Oh, you go ahead, Brett. I think there was a pilot program during the Obama administration that involved electronic monitoring of people who, you know, were awaiting official immigration proceedings. I don't know whether it was for asylum or for some other form of residency. Um, So I guess that that could be the option that they would have to, you know, they would have to there would have to be some sort of accountability mechanism. right? Right. Because because. For other civil infractions like, I don't know, parking tickets or jaywalking, you theoretically could just let those rack up and it's really not seen as a priority. Um, So, but even then, if you introduce electronic monitoring, 
you know, as a civil libertarian, that wigs me out. Uh, I mean, that wigs me out hard because then we're introducing a, we are effectively creating a sort of test population for the government's uh, monitoring of people without a warrant and tracking their behavior. It's just it's right. a, it's a very scary precedent. Plus, you, you want to incentivize people to do the legal thing to apply yeah. for asylum at a port of entry. And so it seems like solutions where you greatly increase legal immigration would be much better and incentivizing people towards legal immigration and legal asylum would be much better than just trying to fix the Trump administration's problems, which is based on how they manage things, not really based on the law with a Band-Aid solution that doesn't really get at the heart of the immigration issue. Yeah, I mean, we have a our immigration laws really haven't been substantively substantively updated since I think the 80s. Um, and the world's changed a lot. And I mean, we need to, at the very least, we need to uh, fund and authorize more asylum judges, you know, administrative law judges to be at ports of entry and other areas so that they can easily adjudicate, uh, you know, claims of asylum uh, or, or other immigration claims. I mean, right. we're, we're operating under a completely different system. And I think there's resistance to actually providing substantive changes because this is something that politicians can run on and mm. it gins up their base. You know, it gets people out to vote. It's a polarizing right. issue. And what's disgusting is that, you know, ultimately there are people at stake, right? <laughs> like yes, there are people yes. who, who, you know. Right. Well, Biden got a lot of flack for, for saying that, hey, if immigrants have a Ph.D., we should keep them. And then Cory Booker went after him and said, this is exactly what's wrong. You know, it, basically, if you do that, you're only going to take in people from Scandinavian countries. And it's not. Well, right. that's not that's not true. I mean, yeah, that's what I, he was implying. I, is what it I, seemed like my my Uber to the airport was I, the, the driver was a man from Armenia who had an advanced degree. I think he had a Ph.D. in optical engineering or something or maybe it was food engineering. I forget. But that's. Yeah. You're not going to just get people from Scandinavia. But I mean, Canada uh, has a merit based immigration system that seems to work really well for them. What do you guys think the policy should be? Should it be merit based? Should we have this you know, family based immigration? How big of a chunk should, of, of immigration should the um, you know, asylum seeking be? These are all really difficult questions and we might not answer them here, but I'm curious what you guys think would make would have the best results, let's say, in just like overall happiness and assimilation into America. Yeah, I, that's such a hard question. I don't even know, you know, how I would begin to answer it. What I would say, though, is we need to figure out a lot of internal issues beforehand like we can we can figure out issues like the efficiency of healthcare, housing all of those things um, first and then we could ideally allow way more immigration and you know have you know a bit a bigger immigrant population and then we can have a better process for integrating them into u.s citizens so again that's not really an answer because i have no idea how to you know 
really fix the problem or what would be the ideal solution. But I do think we need to solve some issues first before we can, you know, allow everybody in, allow, give them health care like some people are proposing and everything else. Um, but we do need to be a, co- a country that is good, that helps people, that helps out the world, I think. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, I don't know the particulars of what consequences would come based off of what, you know, what little technical regulations or laws or, or you know, whatever you, you put into place. But I do think what's important is, is what you said, Justin, is that we want to be good and we want to help people. And so if there's instances where people are suffering immensely in their home countries, either because of past U.S. involvement and in regime change, like in uh, Honduras and Guatemala, or, uh, or you know, there's, there's state-sponsored repression of people based off of certain, you know, protected uh, classes and characteristics, then, uh, then, yeah, we should be working to, to bring them to safety in the United States. And, but then along with that, I think that there should be an understanding that when you come here, you adopt uh, the ideas that I think make the country really a cool place to live. Like mm-hmm. you, you are able to freely express yourself, even if it's saying something that's offensive, as long as it's not an incitement to violence. Uh, you know, you can, you can paint, you can do whatever you want. You can uh, do that. You need to be dedicated to the idea of due process of uh, recognizing the importance of the individual and that society is a collection of individuals who all have inalienable rights. Uh, So, you know, as long as that's maintained and enshrined, then, yeah. I mean, like you said, Justin, it's it's like way too big of an issue. I mean, you could do an entire episode just on that, you know. Yeah. What do you think, Fatimore? Well, I pretty much agree with you guys. I think that part of America's power is that we're perceived as this city on a hill, you know, the Statue of Liberty, and that we've lost that in the Trump administration. And that's part of what made us so influential is that all, the, all these countries looked up to us and that sort of allowed us to take on the role of being a leader. But we've lost that persuasive ability because we've become more nationalistic. So I'd like to see us return to, you know, being a country founded on liberty while still not totally discounting the 40% of Americans that support Trump, the 44% of Americans that support Trump. So I think we need to be a little bit more realistic in our policies. Like, personally, I think decriminalizing the border is just not a well thought out solution. Um, And then the other other big issue, which I want to get your guys' thoughts on, that came up a lot during the debate is healthcare. And you know, there's the notion of giving free health care to illegal immigrants, whereas a lot of Americans don't even have good health care now. But the other issue is, do you allow people to keep their private insurance or do you basically outlaw private insurance and just have one government single payer system? And this is something that Kamala Harris has kind of flopped on. Like she she basically said, oh, you can keep your private insurance. But then the other candidates pointed out, oh, no, your plan specifically disallows people to keep their private insurance. And she just kind of denied it and was like a deer <laughs> in the wrong. headlights. Yeah, she's like, I think you're actually too old and stupid to understand my point. That's <laughs> <laughs> like basically her response. Um, but there is this sense that that 
if we believe in capitalism and we believe that the best ideas rise to the top, why not let people keep their private plan if the government plan is going to be so much better and so much more cost effective? Won't the government plan just win out naturally if you put it up against the you know, plans that have been, been criticized as being so broken? So that's that's kind of my feeling on it. But I wanted to get your guys thoughts on what the right, you know, healthcare system would be for Democratic candidates. Yeah. Uh, so with with healthcare, the issue is there's a lot of inefficiency in healthcare delivery. We're we're the most expensive and least efficient right now. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the issues that people are bringing up is, you know, if we keep the private healthcare insurance, we keep the old incentives. Um, and that might also leak into a public plan that might, all those inefficiencies might just be carried over to the public plan as well. Um, mm. Because there's a lot of ways that we can improve healthcare, but I think we would need to do a big structural change to the entire healthcare system first. But the problem with that is I do still believe in capitalism. I just think we need to rearrange the incentive structure. So if if there are good private plans that don't incentivize doctors to just give out prescriptions willy-nilly or um, any of the other issues that we see st- systemically, then you know I think we'll be in a good position to have people choose what the best... Um, the best healthcare plan is. That's that's a really good point. Um, I, I think it's important to keep in mind that when we talk about capitalism as it relates to healthcare, is that um, markets for providing remedies to maladies to health problems don't operate in the same way as other markets do. So if I'm in anaphylactic shock, I can't. I'm not going to be looking at local hospitals and trying to determine, you know, like, well, is this going to meet my deductible? Is this going to, right. you know, I, I can't make I, I don't have information. I'm not a an informed consumer. So I think markets fundamentally break down, which is why it's important. Uh, you'll now see almost all of the candidates now talk about universal coverage, however, however they want to put that into effect, uh, whether you know, you know, through like a patchwork of insurers or, uh, you know, Medicare for all. Um, but I think it's important that you have at the very, very minimum, a public option so that people can go to, it doesn't need to entirely be single payer, but you, people will have an option that they can go to that everyone is automatically enrolled into all of your taxes will go towards this. If you don't want to participate in it, then fine. Frankly, uh, you know, I would be loath to pay more to an insurance company, which operates off of collecting as much money as possible and paying out as little as possible. Um, I mean, that's just how insurance yeah. works. So, you know, I can I think that there is still a place, though, for small private insurers if you want to insure against very specific uh, you know, health problems. Or maybe if you want more elective surgeries, uh, things like that. It, frankly, I think if you as a consumer want to wrangle with a health insurer, uh, good luck. I mean, <laughs> yeah. that's you, you can you can take that. Um, and you know, I'm not certain how it's done in 
other countries, but I believe that there are private insurers in countries where there is universal coverage where they can sort of expedite uh, your ability to see a doctor. So, yeah. you know, maybe there's a fast lane that right. you pay for. But, I, I really liked Elizabeth Warren's line on this where she said that that uh, insurance companies do not have a God-given right to extract this many billions of dollars out of our healthcare system each year. Yeah. And it's, it is. It's like, why, why do we have, like, why not just give healthcare efficiently and optimize for health rather than optimizing for making profits off of sickness and maladies? Yeah, there, there is a, there is something that always gets brought up into this discussion is that uh, healthcare costs or healthcare expenditures amount to between a sixth and a fifth of our GDP, wow. between sixteen to twenty percent. Yeah, that's huge, <laughs> huge. But uh, <laughs> but, and that's usually used as a justification for why we cannot change the system as it exists. Uh, but that is that's the broken windows fallacy. That's the idea that if I go around into a shop, uh, you know, down a, down a main street and I break all of the windows on local shops. Great. I've, I've created a need for the window makers. Yeah. Yeah, so seriously. it's like, no, I mean, that's what, what you're subscribing to. If you believe that nothing should change is that you believe that one fifth of our economy should be a disease economy and mm. that you should, that we should maintain this so that insurers and anyone else involved with, uh, the, provision of medical care can inflate what they're what they should be making from the public so you know i i just i wanted to point that out because i think that's probably going to come up a lot in future debates or future discussions uh is this idea that we shouldn't do we shouldn't touch anything because you know lord knows if we if we do that we'll upend a fifth of the economy mm -hmm. yeah yeah. Now I want to get into the future scenarios next and hear your guys' thoughts on how you think the future of the Democratic Party is going to play out. My last question, just before we get into that, is on the debate format itself and how you would <laughs> like to see the debate format changed. Um, you know, what does the debate format incentivize? What types of behaviors? Which types of candidates does it does it give favor to? I mean, I'll just open it up with a, a tweet that I thought was really funny, which is like, CNN, Elizabeth Warren, do you hate Bernie Sanders? Elizabeth Warren, no, in fact, we agree on many. CNN, okay, shut up. Uh, Bernie, do you hate Hickenlooper? Bernie, <laughs> not really, but we disagree on the positive. I said, Don't care. Uh, who else? Beto, do you hate? <laughs> because they are, they do egg candidates on to create these viral controversial moments that can then be replayed over and over again on cable news and on social media. And that's what gets the most exposure. So these candidates are basically trying to create these moments and they're attacking each other, which plays right into the Republicans hands because they're going to have all of this, all of this artillery fire they can they can reuse in the national uh, mm -hmm. debates. 
Um, but yeah, I mean, and then, and then obviously the amount of time they give is another thing. They give like all the time to the candidates that are already at the top, which makes it really hard for any of the other candidates to make any sort of dent uh, on the national polls. But yeah, I'm interested to hear your guys' thoughts on how, what's broken about the debate structure and how could it be fixed? And Brett, I know you, you used to do debate, right? So you, you probably have more insights about this than most. Yeah, it's, um, I mean, really, you know, in a perfect world, we just wouldn't have those debates. I mean, the debates as they exist now are theater and mm. they exist to, for the, for CNN, for any of those networks to, uh, to have clips that they can play because they need to fill airtime, uh, especially, you know, if they're 24 hour, God, that's, that's a mm. lot of air that they need to fill. Um, but you know, in terms of, in terms of debates, I think it would be more interesting if they, uh, well, I'll start with the good. I'm really happy now that they've finally started, uh, stopping candidates from going on and on and on. Like they actually have mm-hmm. teeth. They'll say, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. They'll shut down a candidate. Uh, and the, and their rules for rebuttals now are a little better. Uh, so, you know, if you're mentioned by name, you get 30 seconds to rebut it. Um, but still, you know, I think Andrew Yang's criticism in the second debate, his ending, his, his closing remarks still rings pretty true. It's that it's, that's all part of the circus. Uh, and it's all an opportunity for people to, and you know, almost every debate, political debate is this way, is that it's really an opportunity for them to, uh, just point out or just to promote their, their policies and their campaigns. It's rarely ever to discuss you know, issues mm-hmm. of high import or, you know, philosophical. To get to the heart of what the best solution actually is. Yeah. Yeah. No, yeah. no. It's, it's about, it's about promoting your, yourself and your platform. So if a, a simplified answer is we'd probably do away with debates, you know? <laughs> I mean, what about like, I know, uh, Scott Adams and Joe Rogan have both talked about this. What if instead we did like long form podcast debates yeah. where maybe with two candidates at a time and that way everyone gets to like really talk out their issues in detail um, without just having to, you know, format it into 60 second, 30 second sound bites. You would, you would end up having, I, I mean, I really like that idea because there's nothing, well, no, there's a lot more there, being on a podcast is very vulnerable, right? It's just mm-hmm. flow stream of consciousness and stream of consciousness talking is, usually not great for politicians. Uh, you know, they all end up saying something wrong. It's worked out remarkably well for Donald Trump. I have right. no idea why, you know. But I think um, people are more sensitive to authenticity now. And even if you say the most absurd things, they like that more than if you say the right thing in a very lawyerly, like, conserv- careful way. Totally. Yeah, I actually, I really like that idea. I think I'm just laughing because I like imagining Joe Rogan just like asking people about, you know, asking people yeah. about DMT and CBD. Or whatever. He uh, actually yeah. talked to uh, Tulsi Gabbard and Andrew Yang on his podcast. I oh, think yeah. Tulsi Gabbard's been on there a couple of times, but I, I love those. Like you can actually know what they're thinking. And maybe that's why I think those two are very authentic is because I've heard their thoughts. Yeah, they come off as real people. For several hours. Yeah. So I, I would, you know, I would love that. Um, and I think also one of the issues right now is there are 20 candidates. Like 
it, it's hard to have any nuance in conversation when the moderators are trying to get the thoughts of 20 people and, mm-hmm. you know, everything else. So I think it'll probably get a little bit better, or I think it usually gets a little better once the the race dwindles down a little bit. And, you know, towards the end when there's just primaries and then when you have the Republican versus Democrat in the general election cycle. So, you know, I I do like the idea of the podcast, though. That would be my personal preference. You know, if I were to if I were just talking from a consumer perspective, yeah. that would be that would be my option. Oh, we could have him on Hence the Future. and We'll solve the, the whole <laughs> political issue right here and now. Let's Good do luck. it. <laughs> All right. Brett, well, can you help us out? You could probably get, hold on, so I have a list of all of the candidates. I bet you could probably get uh, Mike Gravel. You oh, guys I know love him? Mike Gravel uh, on yeah, Twitter. Yeah, I do too. He <laughs> is hilarious. You know, he has, he has high school students running his, uh, running his like, campaign. I believe it. I, 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 it his, seems like his he's entire... a parody account. It's hard to believe that it's not a parody account. Uh, he was running, so the <laughs> DNC had rules that said, like, you're not allowed to... Uh, you know, you're not allowed to run just for the sake of bringing stuff into discussion. You actually have to run because you want to be president. And so he said, okay, great, fine. So instead of actually doing the whole fundraising thing to pay for staff, setting up, you know, that's, that's a whole mess. Uh, he just got some high school students and they're doing a great job. I yeah, got to give them. seriously. Yeah. Sounds like a fun gig. I wish I could do that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so I don't know. You you could probably get Mike Gravel. I don't know. Maybe Jay Inslee, governor yeah. of Washington. Um, oh, he's is he the one that's running um, mostly on a climate change mm-hmm. campaign? Yeah, a lot of yeah. a lot of women voters think he's sexy. Like I oh. saw one person on Twitter was like was like Jay Inslee's looking pretty daddy tonight. <laughs> and then, like, <laughs> had like all of these retweets and like so. He's got that going for him, but I don't think the single issue thing is going to play well for him, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah well, which is a shame because, you know, out of all of the issues and this is I'm, you know, here's my my take is out of all of the issues where there should be that that, that could be a single issue, a viable single issue campaign. It's it's climate change. I mean, that's, yeah. you mm-hmm. know, everything exists within the context of of the planet. So but Andrew uh, Yang's point was 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 a smart one, which is that the U.S. is only 15% of total emissions. So even if we literally brought the U.S. emissions to zero, it wouldn't make that big of a dent compared to India and China and and Africa. Yeah, He was talking also, though, about exporting clean energy and clean technology, That's which really would smart. which would have an impact on the other 85%. That's a good so, point. Creating a carbon uh, sink, too. Yeah, 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 exactly. So there's there's definitely a lot that can be done. And I agree, Brett. I mean, that's personally, that's the same thing that I would, you know, I I think that that's the most important thing or it's the most important thing to me. Um, but, you know, there I felt like it didn't get a lot of um, coverage because a lot of the talk is about health care, gun violence and other stuff. But, the you know, they at least gave it a fair shot, um, which was nice. Well, I actually have a a stat on this as well. And it's interesting because you basically see over time the polarization of the climate issue, like where now more people than ever 
see global warming as being important to them personally. 72% of people believe global warming is extremely, very, or somewhat important to them. Um, but the 28% that don't believe it's important are like very staunchly, like don't even believe it's happening. So there is this polarization, but just the sheer numbers are moving in favor of doing something mm -hmm. about climate change. So mm -hmm. I think you guys are right that it's an important issue and it's going to become increasingly important as we get more hurricanes and flooding and that sort of thing. Well, and, and you know, the, the Syrian refugee crisis and the refugee crisis on the southern border have direct links to climate change. Right. I mean, in, in equatorial countries, the wet bulb temperature you know, the, the point at which heat and humidity are both so high that you cannot wick sweat away from your body, your body cannot cool down, that's approaching rapidly for uh, equatorial countries. So, I mean, you can't seriously expect people are going to just cook to death. You know, they're going to move elsewhere. So you have to right. come up with a way to maintain our institutions and government while also potentially handling a huge influx of people. Either that or um, or you, you know, figure out a way to put the climate back to where it was, <laughs> which yeah. I don't know, like if we want to do like the, the Matrix where like we blot out the sky or. <laughs> well, know, that's or... the perfect segue into our worst case scenario. <laughs> Justin, what is the worst case scenario? Worst case scenario. Yeah, so when I was thinking about the worst case scenario, it's more in terms of my own philosophy. Um, and I think we do see a movement towards um, democratic socialism right now. And that in and of itself is not necessarily a bad thing. I'm not, I'm not totally against democratic socialism. But what I do see is a sort of um, combative nature against capitalism in general. Like I, I see some people viewing capitalism the same way that others view communism. And I think if the Democratic Party moves towards that and we become more and more extreme, then we're going to see a time when the government is so powerful. And I think right now, even if we go into it with good intentions, over decades, that might lead to situations like uh, Venezuela. And maybe, I mean, I know this is like probably not that likely, but I think if you give um, people too much power, then it'll always be used in a corrupt way, no matter how um, good the intentions were to start off. So that's kind of the worst case is like progressively getting more and more extreme, leading almost to communism pretty much. So that's that's sort of my worst case. What do you guys think? Yeah. You know, I think my worst case, and I, you know, I imagine we're talking about the future of the, of the party here, is that uh, the worst case is that we come out of this not thinking that politics is about changing society. And it's important to recognize that, you know, democracy always functioned way back into ancient times as a way to uh, successfully resolve what would be a civil war, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, you have two opposing parties, there's rules for how you interact, how you engage, and uh, 
and whoever wins that then gets to enact change that's backed by the force of law on how society operates. And so I think that you know the worst case scenario is for politics to not be seen as a way to make people's lives better, but to keep it as something uh, that's just more of a circus, you know, and you can always argue that it's been, it's always been a circus to some extent, but people should never forget that, you know, that there is change that can be made. Um, you just need to actually get involved and you need to be willing to think and you need to be willing to, to put something on the line. I mean, I know that there is in September, there's going to be a general strike, uh, I think focused on the climate and a hundred years ago, it was not seen as too radical. I mean, it was considered kind of radical, but hundred years ago, people were willing to go on a strike and say, nope. The way that this is working, the way that this is proceeding does not work for me. I'm withholding my productive capability for the day, and I'm going to be angry about it. <laughs> and I'm going to make sure that everyone knows that I'm angry, provided that you aren't, you know, continuing to violence. Um, you know, if you if you express your dissatisfaction, if you make it known, and you actually do see politics as a, as a vehicle for change, uh, then I think we can avoid the worst. But I think that the worst would be if people say, well, it's just a circus anyway, I'm just going to be resigned to doing nothing because we see that the consequences of that are, are pretty bad. Yeah. Yeah. People losing hope in the democratic system is a big concern of mine as well. And I, I was thinking about this sort of similar to you guys, both of you guys, in the sense that you know, the worst thing that could happen to the Republican Party is it goes so far to the right that it becomes a fascist regime. The worst thing that could happen to the Democratic Party is that it becomes so extreme that it becomes a communist regime, like a true communist regime. And at least in the countries where communism has been tried, in basically 100% of the cases, it has resulted in a corrupt small group of people exerting way more control than the people bargained for on them so that they can improve their own circumstances uh, for the people in power. So that's my concern. However, I do think a capitalist path to communism could work, just given how much uh, we're producing in this country and the wealth that could be spread around to help a lot of people. So my biggest concern in the worst case scenario is that we try to implement communist policies before we actually fix the problems of government itself. I think if we fix the problems of government itself first, like we fix the rules around gerrymandering, we have a, a separate committee that determines the right way to draw district lines separate from Democratic and Republican input. Like that would be great. If we also have another rule that was proposed where members of Congress cannot become a lobbyist after Congress. And you, we could even increase the salaries of congressmen and congresswomen so they don't feel like they need to become a lobbyist afterwards. And if we make some of these structural changes so that the Democratic Party is truly able to represent the will of the majority of the people, then I think we can do things like implementing a freedom dividend where every Democrat, every American gets a thousand bucks a month, implementing 
you know, healthcare, universal healthcare for all citizens, because it can be made in a way that's not corrupt with with loopholes and, you know, special wink winks to the people who give those candidates the money. Like, you know, they came up in this campaign that Kamala Harris's health care plan was in part drafted by someone who was basically in, in bed with like big, big health care, big pharma. And, you know, that's all too common. So, yeah, my, my worst case is we we put the cart before the horse. We put communism before fixing the <laughs> this this government structure that will allow us to. Uh, divide up wealth in an equitable way without special mm. interests getting in the way. Well, so. what do you guys think about the best case then? Best case scenario. Yeah, so I can start. So my best case is, well, first I'll just say, like, as far as the candidates, who I, what I, what do I think would be the best? And I would say that, you know, first of all, I would love if, if, you know, Yang became president, and but I don't think it's that likely. So as mm-hmm. far as like a likely best case, I would say having Biden and, and Buttigieg as a ticket, I think that is probably the most likely to end up beating Trump. And the reason I would like them together is because I think Buttigieg has all of like the right vision for the right, you know, policies and He's just a very smart guy, so I feel like he could handle a lot of the operation that Sleepy Joe might not be able to handle as well. But Sleepy Joe could seriously, uh, you know, take down Trump just because he's got such good, good, uh, you know, people have high favorability rankings of Biden. And he sort of has this nostalgic air of going back to the way things used to be before our values got totally thrown out of whack by Trump and grabbing by the pussy and Russia Gate and all of this ridiculous stuff that we've been dealing with in the last couple of years. So that's that's my best case as far as candidates. And then as far as the Democratic Party, I would say, you know, the Democratic Party, if it can truly focus on representing the will of the majority of people, I think that's the best path. The Republicans I think they're going to be all about representing the will of rural Americans and sort of more traditional Americans, whatever that means. But for Democrats, I think the best case would be they just focus on representing the will of the majority of all citizens, all voters. I think it would be really cool to see Andrew Yang as uh, the Secretary of Labor. Uh, On an an aside, I think that's actually... You know, if there's the biggest thing that's threatening uh, the world of labor right now, it's automation. He's the only presidential candidate, really yeah. the only public figure in politics that's talking about it. Yeah. Um, so, you know, hopefully, hopefully that I don't know, that would be a smart appointment. Yeah, I, I couldn't, I couldn't see him as, as VP, but I could see him as like secretary of commerce or in terms of, sure. you know, in terms of who would make a good ticket. There's just so many people I, I can't even choose. But one thing that I do think is important is that uh, whoever's on the ticket, you know, it should not be uh, it, it shouldn't be two white people and probably two men either. Uh, you know, I think it's important to recognize and that's not saying that there's something essential about people's characteristics. But 
there is a great symbolic power in uh, in people from you know smaller communities, marginalized communities, in seeing someone become you know attain highest office. So I think it's important that that at least be recognized and considered. Um, again, I don't think that those characteristics create an essential profile of someone. Like, I don't think if you are right. white, you're going to think a certain way, nor if you're black, you're going to think a certain way, or if you're Latino or Hispanic, you're going to think a certain way. But it does provide, uh, you know, some level of perspective uh, that should be included. Mm-hmm. Although, but Buttigieg has the young and gay perspective, which is quite different from the old and straight perspective. That, that, that yeah, that's, I mean, that's something to also consider, definitely. What would your ideal ticket be? Too Can't tough. Say. Too tough. Um, I don't know. I mean, I'd like to see someone from the left wing of the party because ultimately it comes down to policy, and I tend to I tend to skew left. So I would like to see Warren or Bernie at least, uh, you know, somewhere there. What I think would be really interesting is if whoever is the vice presidential candidate uh, should be someone from the Senate. And my reasoning for that is that uh, the vice president, as the president of the Senate, uh, can act on procedural matters unless they change the rules somehow or they amend the Constitution. But, you know, right now the vice president is mostly relegated to state functions and taking on, you know, a big public affairs campaign, that kind of thing. It will be really interesting to see uh, to see the vice president then decide to just start mucking around in the Senate. And, you know, that seems to be an intractable area where it's hard to enact change. So it'd be interesting to see the interplay between a rather ossified part of the legislature and a a now more robust executive branch, which has become more robust, you know, ever since, I mean, FDR, Lincoln, you know? Yeah. I think that would be cool. By the way, interesting stat is that people talk about how the president's approval ratings are somewhat low at like, you know, 40, 44%. Congress's approval ratings are 17%. (laughs) That means, and this is from July 2019, very recent, 76% of Americans disapprove of the way Congress is handling its job. So I think you're spot on when you say that we need to have a better system for making Congress do what it's intended to do. You know what I love about that is that the incumbency rate is still in the 90s. So it's like (laughs) people are like, yeah, I totally love my guy. I hate everyone else's guy, Uh, which, you know, which I just I think is fascinating. Um, It's a little myopic, but whatever. Uh, So, yeah, it would be interesting to see sort of an injection, a more interplay between the executive and the legislative. Mm hmm. I think that's a really good point. What's your best case, Justin? Yeah, I mean, in terms of the ticket, kind of like you said, Matamor, I would love if Andrew Yang was on the ticket. He's my favorite. Um, I think he has very real solutions to everything. Um, I'm not sure. I mean, I also like Buttigieg, and I think he would be a good vice president. I don't know if that's that's too male. I mean, there's an Asian guy and a gay guy, which, you know, there's some diversity there. Um so, but I do take your point also, Brett, that it we probably do need to see a female in there soon because that's a um, it's something we've sort of been lacking in the U.S. 
Um, and we need to have that diversity of perspective in uh, the White House. Um, but in terms of the best case for the party as a whole, I think the kind of like you were saying, Madam Moore, if we can fix structural changes, the Democratic Party has views and philosophies that um, I totally agree with for the most part. Like everything that's being talked about about healthcare, everything that's being talked about about the um, climate, everything else that they're talking about, I'm pretty much all for. But we do need to fix some of the structural changes. We need to change um, the incentive structure with a lot of government policies and rules and really revitalize capitalism where it matters. And maybe that is not healthcare. Maybe we have like certain things that are totally public and run by the government and we can kind of leave the rest, um, let the market optimize the rest. So I think, you know, in the best case, we can fix those changes and the views of, you know, the current Democrats can win out in the end, because to me, I think that they're the best ideas and they're the actual long lasting ideas um, that will, you know, people in 100 years will not look back on the Democratic Party today and say like, oh, these people were um, crazy. I think that'll be we will look back that way on the other party, most likely in in a lot of their um, policies. Mm -hmm. So I just I think in the best case, you know, we can we can actually make the changes that we want to make. Um, Yeah, I forget who it was, but someone might have been Sam Harris said that when we look back in a hundred years, or this actually might have been Rucker Bregman, he said the things that will be perceived as being horrible that we're doing today are our treatment of animals, our treatment of immigrants, um, Mm -hmm. and then the treatment of the environment, of the planet. Mm -hmm. And those are the three areas that we're really not doing a good job on right now. So, Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah, I want to add one more thing, which is I really hope that the Democratic Party becomes the party of, uh, I'd say it's like the party of John Rawls. John Rawls is a political philosopher who had this idea that if there were a lottery that determined your life, you had, uh, you know, you had the likelihood of living a life destitute without a house, without health care, without adequate access to food, all of that. Um, and that were determined by lottery, you would obviously not want to buy into that system. I, mm-hmm. I wouldn't want to buy into a system where, by random chance, I could be, uh, you know, destitute uh, and impoverished. Um, so I think that you know the Democratic Party should embrace fundamental tenets like, yep, you have a right to housing, you have a right to health care, you have a right mm-hmm. to food, you have a right to, uh, you know, these things. Maybe like a, a second bill of rights. Um, kind of like what FDR talked about. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, you know, they really champion those things because they are material uh, elements that make people's lives better. And that's yeah. that's the whole point of society, making people's lives better. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Awesome. Well, let's move on to the most likely scenario. Most likely scenario. So I'll I'll start off because I have this interesting, I don't know if you guys have heard about this, but the 13 keys to the White House. Have you guys heard of this? Mm-hmm. This was, no. 
So basically, it's it's uh, Alan Lickman, who mm. he was on. Uh, I think he was on Bill Maher recently. But basically, he talks about using data science. You can predict who's going to win an election based on these thirteen questions. And if you ask these thirteen questions, and more than five of them are false, then that means the challenger is going to beat the incumbent. If less than five of them are false then that means the incumbent is going to win. So I have these 13 indicators right here, and let's just go down them real quick, and, and we'll see how it's looking, if Trump's going to mm. win. <laughs> so the first is, after the midterm elections, the incumbent party holds more seats in the House than before. So that one is false, right? False. The, the Republicans lost the House, so that one's false. So, so far we have one of the five keys have been turned. The next one okay. is that there's a serious contest for the incumbent party nomination. That would be like if, if Kasich really made a run against Trump. That's not going to happen. The next one is incumbency. The incumbent party candidate is the sitting president. Okay, yes. That's, that, I mean, that's going to be one, but it's not a key. The next is that there's no significant third party candidate. There probably isn't going to be one. Mm. Then, you know, the short-term economy is good. That's true. The long-term mm-hmm. economy is good. That also seems true. The inco- uh, yeah, I would, I, I would, I would no? go against that. I would say that the the general sentiment is people expect some sort of recession and sort of view where where we are now as a bubble, yeah. in in yeah. some sense. Um, okay, there's... let's turn that as a key. That's I agree. That's. Although the way this is phrased is that real per capita economic growth during the term equals or exceeds mean growth during the previous two terms. So it's a very I don't specific. Think that, I don't know if that's the case. Um, I, I don't think yeah, it's. Yeah. Yeah. I looked, I, I tried looking into it, but I didn't have enough time to like, yeah. fully delve into what the math is. Yeah. But okay. So let's, let's consider that a key. So, so far we have two of the five keys turned. The next is policy change. The incumbent administration affects major changes in national policy. I think we can consider that true based on what true. he's done with immigration yeah. and North Korea and whatever. Mm-hmm. Social unrest. There is no social unrest. <laughs> what do you guys yeah, think? I think mm. false. I, I don't think, I don't think it's that bad. Unrest. It's not that bad. I mean, how are we how are we defining that? Like it's yeah. not it's not like we don't. We're not at Venezuela, but you know. Should we turn know. it? There's. All right, fine. Let's that, turn it. Let's say there's social. That makes it. That makes it more exciting. Okay. We could we could count this and the long term prospects as as half turns if we needed to. Well, for now, for now, <laughs> let's just let's say we have three of the five. By the way, you have to get to six keys for it to be. It's okay. just that the five is like the more or less number. Okay. So the next is scandal. The incumbent administration is untainted by a major scandal. I would well, say that's, that's false. He has a major scandal. But untainted. I mean, I don't think his his supporters really view them as, you know, bad things. I, I don't yeah, know for sure. But you but... can't say Trump's not tainted by scandal. I mean, yeah, he, he is pretty tainted. <laughs> yeah, there's not, a lot going on. What president is. <laughs> okay. That's true. The next, so we have four of the four of the keys turned. So foreign military failure, if the incumbent administration suffers no major failure in the military. 
he hasn't suffered a major failure in the military. Incumbent charisma. The incumbent party candidate is charismatic or a national hero. He's definitely charismatic. Not a a national hero, but he's definitely charismatic. (laughs) And then the final one is... Yeah, I guess the final I don't even is, view him as charismatic, though. Oh, like he's, come on, he just, dude. He's, he, he plays he, he the media charisma. like a fiddle. Yeah, I guess, yeah. Okay, challenger charisma is the final one, and this is the most subjective of all the keys. So the challenging party candidate is not charismatic, meaning if the challenger mm. is charismatic, that's considered key. So this is So we have four. If we hit this then we still it still means Trump's going to win, but it means that we only need one other key to turn for him not to win. Do you mm. think that the challenger is going to have charisma? It's hard to say. Like, does Sleepy Joe have charisma? Does Harris have charisma? Does Warren have charisma? Kind of, not really. So I think we're pretty much stuck at four keys, and we would need six keys in order for Trump to lose. So unfortunately... My most likely scenario is that Trump's going to win. Yeah, I mean, you know, until the general election, it's a lifetime, right? Like we still have a year, year and change. That's so much time for something to happen, whether it's policy, whether it's, you know, whatever. Um, so we can't really tell. Um, but if you buy my book, it's recently published. <laughs> no, uh, no. <laughs> no, um, the 14 no, but, keys. Yeah, the 14 keys. <laughs> no, but this, this has successfully predicted something like the last, like, seven presidents or something. I so remember in, like, wow. 2015 or 2016, this guy was uh, uh, was promoting this, and the media was playing it like he was just some, you know, I think he's out of American University, right? Or something. Like, they, they were playing him as though he was just some quack, and nope, <laughs> nope, he predicted it right. Mm-hmm. So... So, yeah, apparently yeah. it uses the same prediction models that were used to predict seismic activity. So it's a really data-driven approach mm-hmm. where they they look at these like, I mean, I don't know how they use seismic data to create this model, but that's what it says on on Wikipedia. Maybe it's the same underlying model, like a neural network or or you know some sort of algorithm that that gets the right. incoming data. I mean, and I don't think the likely case is Trump winning. And this is, you know, I live in Tennessee and I can kind of gauge the general sentiment around what's going on here. At the beginning of the term, it was all, you know, pro-Trump, hate Hillary, the, you know, the general rhetoric. What I, what I see and what I have seen more recently is people are annoyed as hell with Trump. They're like, okay, he's doing some things and give me somebody that I can get behind. I think if we go with a far left candidate, we're probably not going to win. But if we can have a centrist, we're going to, I think they'll pull a lot of uh, Trump, previous Trump supporters to the center and vote Democrat. Like even the most staunch Republicans are like, okay, if you give me a reasonable Democrat, I will vote for that Democrat because everyone's just kind of fed up with how Trump mm. tweets everything, his stream of consciousness. And it, it makes me optimistic hearing that from Tennessee, where generally that has not been the case um, right. until sort of recently. And I think also he's he's 
causing a lot more instability in the market, which is like just the past two days. I don't know what the the market is today, but it's almost it's down, down two percent. It's two percent down. It's one percent each day, pretty much, which is a lot of money in the general. Well, part market. of that's also the Fed lowered uh, interest no, rates. But a lot of that is good for business. Yeah. But right, the, but it's the, an indicator that they foresee a downturn coming. So it's right. kind of like, oh, shit, what's going to happen? Yeah, there, there's more nuance to it than they than foreseeing a, a downturn. I the mean, there's, economic there's global a, slowdown. Yeah, the, like, I, I'm not sure what, what the situation is going to be, but I know a lot of yesterday's downfall was supposedly around the extra tariffs on China. And mm. I think people are getting fed up with this trade war. And I think that that's going to be pretty good ammunition for any Democrat, really. Mm-hmm. Um, so when, I think in the likely case, you know, if, if it's centrist, um, a centrist candidate, then they will win. If it's if it's a Bernie character, if it's an Elizabeth Warren, then I think Trump is probably going to win. Well, um, it, you know, what's interesting is that, you know, you'd expect normally people who do have a large stake in the financial health of the country. And I mean, people, you know, wealthier people, let's say, mm-hmm. uh, you'd expect them to be financially pretty, gifted. Sure. Yeah. Gifted. <laughs> uh, they, uh, I remember reading recently that they're actually warming up to Warren. Uh, Interesting. and it's probably because, yeah, I mean, she has something like a wealth tax, which, you know, debating the constitutionality of that, whatever. But, um, but you know, she's actually willing to, at least recognize that there should be some sort of policy intervention to mm-hmm. rein in excesses. Uh, and that, I mean, I will say this for her is that she is a brilliant policy mind. And, yeah. you know, if you're someone that's worried about someone like Donald Trump making sweeping changes and just throwing a 10% tariff out there because he didn't sleep well or whatever, <laughs> like that's, that's not going to happen with, uh, with Senator Warren. And I know yeah. that there's, you know, for people that are tracking that closely, financial people, uh, you know, stability is the name of the game. They want someone who's mm-hmm. stable and predictable so that they can make rapid mm-hmm. <laughs> computer driven, data driven uh, decisions off of that. So, mm-hmm. so yeah, I'm just and I, I hope that's the, I mean, I would, I would love if she could do well. And, and I think, you know, that wasn't, I wasn't, you know, going Saying against her and thinking I don't yeah. like her. Well, what do you um, think is actually the most likely, Brett? Out of the Democrats? Or... Like, how do you foresee, if, if you had to bet money on what, how the future is going to play out, who's going to win the nomination, and then who's going to win the general, what would you bet? All right, I'm looking at a list now. I bet to win the nomination and the general. I mean, probably probably Biden right now, just because everything seems to kind of be going his way. It's still way too early. Right. Um, and an you example think he would that, win the general if he, if he won the primary? Yeah. I mean, it just depends on, it depends on the feeling of the country and whether the economy has gone down and whether people are getting tired of, you know, Trump flying off the cuff, um, and kind of shooting from the hip. Um, and if they want someone who's, more traditional and offers more stability, definitely more political stability. Uh, yeah, I think Joe Biden would probably win if he were nominated 
but it's still too far to tell. I mean, yeah. there's still, you know, earlier this year was the financial primary, the donor primary, where people that bundle large amounts for candidates, people that collect checks and, you know, do all that, uh, you know, they determined who they're supporting. And I think that gave Biden a bit of a boost. And right now they're kind of in the interest group primary. So groups that offer endorsements uh, like the unions or, uh, you know, environmental groups or whatever, they are still figuring out who they're going to support. So once that's settled up, then I think we're going to start having a firmer picture, a clearer picture of what um, who's actually likely to win. Yeah, well, we should do a follow up episode when the Republicans do their national uh, primary and we can talk about the future of their party. But then we can also touch on, OK, what's been happening recently with the Democrats? Because that'd, that'd be, be interesting sweet. to see it play out. Definitely, definitely. I mean, they, they play off of the other, you know, they play off of each other. So it's Heads like and tails up and can't. down. Republican, Democrat. Oh, man. I got to have a side gig yeah. <laughs> in case this doesn't work out. <laughs> You're a political correspondent. You already got a side gig. Yeah, I guess that's true. <laughs> I'll wait for a check in the mail. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Awesome. So uh, I just want to, if you're wrapping up. Yeah, I, yeah, I want to hear any final thoughts or anything you have. I want to make sure we've done our due diligence by listing literally everyone who's running yeah. uh, in the Democratic primary. So you have Michael Bennett, Colorado senator, kind of a new Democrat, Joe Biden, Bill de Blasio. We didn't mention him, but he, uh, a blowhard. he made it. Yeah, <laughs> doesn't know how to work a subway. I like to um, write people off with a single phrase. <laughs> you know, you know, he chose the last name de Blasio, like his original last name. I think that's his mother's. That's his maiden name. His original last name was like Wilhelm or something. Huh. <laughs> he chose the name. Anyway, uh, Cory Booker. OK, covered him. Steve Bullock, Montana, governor of Montana. Yeah, I don't like the of... way he talks. He's, <laughs> he's too much like this. And folks, when you got the regular voters out there and Donald Trump, it's like so annoying. Yeah, he's a cowboy. Uh, Pete Buttigieg covered him. Julian Castro, he laid down some serious fire. Yeah. At the he won the woke awards for sure. Yeah, definitely. He, he actually has a pretty strong chance. I'd watch him. He, uh, I mean, he's definitely shored up, you know, the, the Latino, Hispanic, you know, wing of the party. Um, you know, how, like in the House, there is there's something called the Congressional Hispanic Caucus, which represents the interests of Hispanic and Latino members. And I mean, he seems to be the only one from that demographic group who's running. And that's particularly important, you know, going in the future and now. So keep an eye yeah. on him. John Delaney, Tulsi Gabbard. Kirsten yeah. Gillibrand, Mike Gravel, Kamala Harris, covered all of them. John Hickenlooper, it doesn't, okay. Uh, I met him, Jay, he's a nice guy. Yeah. He's got a great yeah. name. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like him. Uh, just for his name, I don't actually know what he stands for. Um, <laughs> uh, Jay Inslee, Amy Klobuchar from Minnesota, Senator. Yeah. Uh, Sagat Adams made the point that she's not telegenic. She doesn't mm. play well on television. And I know that, uh, you know, she's been gotten a lot of flack for her employees not liking her, like saying she's a mean boss, basically. And I will say that 
I have my sister's friend works for Elizabeth Warren and absolutely loves Lizzie, as she calls her. And it is telling what your employees think of you. Yeah, I um, I'm not going to comment there. Uh, <laughs> Seth Moulton from Massachusetts. Uh, he's just always kind of rabble rousing. He tried to unseat Nancy Pelosi a while oh, back. I don't know him. He's he's a veteran. He's had that going, but I don't think he's going to get much anywhere in this contest. Nice guy, though. I've met him a few times. Mm-hmm. Um, Beto O'Rourke. We didn't cover him at all. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think uh, Scott Adams called him an empty suit. <laughs> but and then, but the more favorable take on him is that he's really good in five or ten minute speech increments. But when you try to make him just do thirty second or sixty second sound bites, he's not nearly as effective. Yeah, he should run for Senate again. Yeah. Um, Tim Ryan from Ohio. He's the guy that kept getting Such a cynic. down. Yeah. He's also a nice guy, too, though. Yeah. Uh, Bernie Sanders, Tom Steyer, Elizabeth Warren, Marianne Williamson, Andrew Yang. Yeah, that's... Yeah. We ran through them, guys. Jeez. That's good. I, I, Andrew Yang gained the most Twitter followers after the debate. He gained 25,000 followers after a single Jesus. night. So he is the candidate of choice for the Cognoscenti, the yeah. Twitter folks. So. Yeah. Nice traditional Latin pronunciation there. <laughs> oh, yeah. Brett and I are both classicists, so naturally. Yeah. Of course. Of course. Yeah. Um, but, yeah. And then, I don't know, Donald Trump and Bill Weld. You guys know Bill Weld? No. Him? He's a former governor of Massachusetts. He's, like, very – he ran – he was the libertarian VP under – in 2016 under Gary Johnson. And uh-huh. Bill Weld is, like – a Massachusetts Republican. He's just, he's an old Boston Brahmin, like Rockefeller Republican. Doesn't really care what you do in your private life. Just likes, you know. Well, I saw like, this clip of this, of this, uh, the libertarian debate and they were debating whether you should have to have a driver's license before yeah. you get in a car. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like, these guys are so far like having their own conversation. That's like so separate from the rest of mainstream America. It's just, it's it's not something worth spending too much attention on right now. Well, yeah, but John McAfee's pretty funny. Um, I mean, he's crazy. Yeah, he's a great Twitter personality. Yeah, I always love the the libertarian uh, debates because, like, invariably there's some guy wearing a V for Vendetta mask with like a ponytail <laughs> that hasn't been washed in you know decades. Yeah, uh, yeah, you get a lot of interesting characters there, but but yeah, nice. Well, something to keep track of. Thank you, Brett, for joining us on today's episode, and thank you, everyone, for listening. This has been the future of the Democratic Party. We're going to talk about and what see has you guys happened, next time. what is currently happening, thank you. and what will inevitably right, happen. The past, the present, and the future.
Hey futurists, if you've made it this far, you might be wondering who created the Hence the Future theme song. It was created by the Walden Brothers, and you can find them on Spotify. The Walden Brothers also produced the sound bites for the worst case, the best case, and the most likely future scenarios. At Hence the Future, we're always looking for ways to improve the quality of our episodes and our predictions. To that end, we're building a team of researchers to curate the most authoritative and highly vetted sources as the foundation for every episode. If you'd like to support these efforts, you can donate a small monthly amount at anchor.fm slash hence the future. And if you haven't done so already, please rate and review the podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. We appreciate your support.